The concept of following Jesus may seem somewhat elementary or mundane to us 21st century people who profess faith in Christ. You might be sitting here saying, of course I know what it means to follow Jesus. I've followed Jesus longer than you've been alive, pastor. (laughs) However, there are moments, key moments in our lives that we must go back to the basics, so to speak, especially moments when we face a crisis of faith. When hardships come, when storm clouds gather on the horizon, when fears of the future creep into the margins of our minds, how important is it for us to stop and remember what it means to really, truly follow Jesus? As we will see in Matthew 16, Jesus has clearly laid out what it means to be a disciple. We don't have to guess what it means to follow Jesus. We have the explicit instructions given to us in Jesus's own words. As we will see, a disciple is someone, a person who knows who Jesus is, who knows what Jesus has done and knows what is expected of him or of the one who comes after him. In this, we're going to consider three things. We're going to consider the person of Jesus the plan of redemption and the pattern that has been set for us as believers. Now, Matthew 16 serves as a turning point in the gospel's narrative. The confession of who Jesus is and his subsequent declaration of his coming death sets the tone for the rest of Matthew's gospel. Whatever passage we study throughout the rest of Matthew's gospel, it has its eyes fixed on the cross. It has its eyes fixed on Golgotha. From here on out, everything is about preparing for his coming death, burial, and resurrection. I think it's important for us to appreciate this transition as we get through. We've been talking about Jesus' miracles. We've been talking about people's reaction to Jesus. And now we come to the final section of Matthew's gospel, which is the final proof of how he's the Messiah. And what is the final proof? How do we know that Jesus is the Messiah foretold in the ancient scriptures? Well, Matthew says unequivocally, it is his atoning death on the cross and his resurrected glory. We cannot see whether the, all these months, the last year, we've been going through Matthew for over a year. So if you find anything applicable to your life today, I did not know a year ago that the things that we're going through would happen. So just, just so you know, I'm not preaching at you. The scriptures speaking to you a year ago, we started this knowing that at this moment, at this time in history, at this time in our nation's life, that we as the people of Grace Church would need to be reminded who Jesus is. And if we don't pay attention to the cross, if we don't pay attention to the empty tomb, we will simply fail to see Matthew's clear portrait of Jesus. Now, here's the, here's the danger of failing to see Jesus and his work clearly. If we fail to see Jesus and his work clearly, in doing so, we will also fail to see who we are called to be. We will also fail to see the pattern that Christ has called us to live. A Christ confusion inevitably leads to a calling confusion. 
And if we are confused about our calling, we in turn will be rendered completely ineffective and immobilized in our discipleship. So here's what's at stake. If we don't understand who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he expects of us, if we don't understand the person, the plan, and the pattern, we are not going to be effective disciples. Healthy discipleship requires us to know and to live in those three things. So... The first aspect of real true discipleship is knowing who Jesus really is. Matthew 16, 13, Jesus and his disciples come to the district of Caesarea Philippi. And it's in this district that Jesus' true identity is revealed. Now, in many cases, where Jesus chooses to say certain things or do certain things matters. And especially in this case, what is Caesarea Philippi? If you go all the way back to the Old Testament, you find that it's this place where God confusion has been prevalent for centuries. It was once called Baal Gad or uh, Gad of the Canaanite god Baal. And then it was renamed later as Panias after the Greek god Pan. And it was during that Greek god period that they began making human sacrifices in this place. And then it was named after a third god, Caesar, Caesarea. Philippi, or Philip's Caesarea. So when we come to this place of Caesarea Philippi, we see this place where we almost see a a perfect mascot of a spiritually confused fallen world who is chased after a number of different gods. In this place, there's this cave that had this open mouth that was called the Gates of Hades. And it was at this mouth of the cave that unspeakable sins were done. Things uh, that we wouldn't even begin to utter in this place were committed. Cult prostitution, bestiality, some say human sacrifices. And to this day, you can still see the cutouts on the sides of the cliff where the idols once stood. Now, what's the point here? Why talk about the historical background of this place? Well, I just want to point it out because this is one of the worst places in Israel. One of the worst places. When you visit there this day, you get this air, this creepy feeling that you're standing in a place where people were slaughtered in the name of other gods. You're standing in this place where People were committing bestiality. I mean, you're standing in this nasty, wicked, dark place. And it's in the darkest place in Israel that Jesus chooses to reveal himself as the Messiah. The gospel, the light of the gospel does not shy away from dark places. The light of the gospel penetrates even the darkest depths of human depravity. And it is at this place, at the place where you could still see the idols... That Jesus says, that Jesus reveals that he is the Christ, the King, the son of the living God. Now, when Jesus and his disciples arrive in Caesarea Philippi, he asked them, who do people say the son of man is? This question is important. Throughout the gospel, son of man is Jesus' preferred title. You'll never see Jesus explicitly calling himself the Christ or the Messiah because of all the confusion that was wrapped around that term. And we'll talk about that here in a minute. But the son of man alludes back to Daniel 7, where there's a son of man who is given dominion over all the nations by God himself. And that's what Jesus refers to himself as, as the son of man. Who do people say the son of man is? So Jesus here is polling his disciples. What do people say about me? 
And here's their answer. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. You know, they see clearly that Jesus works these mighty works and he does amazing things. So maybe, just maybe he's Elijah who also did great things like on Mount Carmel. We remember that. So maybe he's Elijah. They hear his teaching and they hear the theme of repentance and him crying out to people to turn to God and turn away from sin. So maybe he's some kind of reanimated John the Baptist or Jeremiah. As flattering as all these opinions may be, they ultimately fall short of Jesus' real authority and status. They are absolutely blind to who Jesus really is. They don't mind having him as some important teacher or elevated prophet or let's put him up in the top ten of the world's best gurus. But they don't see him as Jesus, the authoritative, the incarnate son of God, a.k.a. God himself. Now, you might be someone here. You might know someone. You might be that someone who knows that Jesus is an important figure in your life. My friends, can I just suggest to you having Jesus as an important accessory in your life? means that you have failed to see who he really, 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 truly is. He is not some important accessory. He's not just a top guru. He's not just a prophet. He is something much more. Even if you have an elevated status of who Jesus is, unless it's the exalted status of Jesus as God, we fail to see him rightly. Now, hearing their answers, Jesus turns and asks a more personal question. But who do you say that I am? Now, the question's incredibly important. Again, in his restated question, Jesus is hinting that it's quite possible that his disciples should have a different opinion than what everybody else says about him. That his disciples should see him in a different light than the way that the world sees him. They should be speaking of him in a different light than the world sees him. He, they, their view of Jesus is fundamentally different than the world. He's more than that powerful prophet, more than a great teacher. His disciples see him as something more than all of that. And Peter speaks up for the group and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now it's important to dissect Peter's statement here. First, he calls Jesus the Christ, which is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah. So he just saying, you are the Messiah. Where does Messiah come from? Well, it comes from Psalm 2, when we see that the nations are raging, right? The nations hate God, and who else? His Messiah, his anointed one. And what is the Messiah? Well, the Messiah is God's anointed king, who he himself enthrones on Zion and gives him dominion over the nation. So Peter says clearly, you're that king. You're the king that God himself has seated on the throne of Zion. You're the king who has all the power over China, over Russia, over future America, over current Israel. You're the God, the the son of God who has been enthroned over the throne, even of Antarctica where the penguins live. It's all yours. And then Peter confesses that Jesus is the son of the living God. Which again is a royal term. It's a term used often in describing Israel. We see it in Hosea 2.1, for example, where the people of Israel are declared to be the sons of the living God as they follow one leader, as we find out later who's the new King David. 
So in this case, son points to Jesus's royal authority and status as he aligns himself with his people and leads them in restoration. That's his picture of Jesus. Jesus is the king. He's not just the king. Jesus is the king of all nations. He's not just the king of all nations. He's the king of all nations. And he has come to bring his people back to God. All that packed up in one beautiful sentence. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, Jesus affirms Peter's conclusion. He says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed, it, revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Notice how Jesus defines blessed in this passage. According to him, Peter's understanding that Jesus is the Christ, the King, is a blessing. Think of all the ways that we have used the word blessed in our day. We tend to think we are blessed when we receive an unexpected bonus. We are blessed when we receive a promotion. We are blessed when we get a clean bill of health. We are blessed when politics are going our way. And yet, Jesus defines a blessing here as knowing who he is and nothing more. Real blessing in its truest sense is knowing Christ is king. Now that's interesting, isn't it? It's a blessing because it's not something that we've come to on our own. It's not something that we gain through our own intellect. It's not something we stumble across and happen to see. It's a blessing because of who it comes from. If you know Jesus as King, there is only one being in all the universe who sits above the universe, who has given you that knowledge. It's not been by flesh and blood. It's been by Jesus's father, God himself. The whole world may remain blind to that truth, but God himself in his grace, in his mercy, in his unwarranted love has given us the truth that Jesus is king. So if you know that according to Jesus, you are blessed even if you lose your job. Even if you lose your health. Even if you lose your spouse your prosperity, your popularity, even if you lose your life. My friends, how chiefly have we treated the knowledge of Christ? I mean, I can't tell you, I've been in many a pastoral meetings and I have felt it myself just to, just to help you see it's not new. Yeah. I, I know Jesus. Great. Put that in the back burner for things to keep in mind later. But right now I don't really feel that blessed because of X, Y, Z. How cheaply have we treated the truth that Jesus is King and the fact that that could not come in any other way. There's a billion different ways to make more money. There's a billion different ways to sell yourself for a promotion. There's only one way to know Jesus is King. And yet we treat that as the cheapest, most accessible gift we have. My friends, if we have nothing else, the knowledge, the intimate knowledge that Jesus says, my king is all the blessing we could ever want or need. 
Because it means he is your king, which means he has given you life. True blessing in its fullest sense means you could die as an unimportant, forgotten person where nobody knows where you're buried and you are still blessed because your God is king and you know him. Jesus' next statements have been subject to a lot of debate and I'm not going to hash it out here. I think careful attention to the text can make it clear that Jesus is not exalting a man, but he's exalting a confession, a statement. Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And in Greek, Peter's name is Petros, which means rock. And on this rock, Petros, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What is Jesus's? What is Jesus saying here? Peter's name does mean rock, but the rock upon which Jesus builds his church is not so much Peter himself. As the very next passage will show, Peter would be a very poor foundation for the church. So it's not Peter himself as much as it's Peter's confession of Christ. His statement, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He was an important rock in that church. No no debate about that. The book of Acts clearly displays that. But it was particularly what he said, what he believed about Jesus that founds the church. Jesus, the only builder of the church, builds his church upon the foundational confession of Jesus's identity. Jesus's identity is the constitution of the church. It's the charter document that we live by. It's the foundation bedrock stone. Do you realize that if we have agreement in nothing else, if there's Christ, there's a foundation for Christ's church. I mean, think about it. He's got a, he's got a, it sound, his disciples sound like a walking joke. A zealot, a tax collector, and a fisherman walk behind Jesus. What do they all have in common? They are desperately wicked sinners. And they, by the grace of God, have found the king. My friends, (laughs) I've been tempted a lot lately by people who've talked with me that I need to be clear about whose sins are worse and whose sins are better. That's not what we're here to do. We're here to confess that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God, and we need him. And that's what founds us as a church. Every nation in the world will break against that rock when they oppose it. We will not break because we are founded on that rock. So it doesn't really matter who's better, who's worse out there. If they aren't founded on this rock, they will be utterly shattered. Doesn't matter what their political views are. Doesn't matter who they voted for. Doesn't matter what job they have. Doesn't matter how much money they have. It doesn't matter any of those things. They could be the best person you know if they are not founded on the confessional truth that Jesus is king, they will break. We are built on Christ. A Christ-centered church doesn't bother itself with what the world says about him. The Christ-centered church doesn't bother itself with what the popular opinion is. The Christ-centered church is a church founded on the proclamation of Christ. And so if I preach nothing but Christ is king, 
and I leave what you really want me to say unsaid, praise God. That's a Christ-centered preaching. The church founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be overcome. My friends, Inauguration Day is coming, and I know there's not too few of you here that are worried about what might happen that day. There's not too few of you here that are worried about what the policies passed under the new president might bring. Policies that, yes, we, many of us, should disagree with. Why are we scared? The gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Oh, but the president will. Oh, but my boss will. Oh, but my personal views that must be said openly on Facebook will. No, the gates of hell, the gates of Hades itself, death itself. If something as bad, I just want to paint the picture again. You remember, these are, this is the place where unspeakable, atrocious acts are happening. And even this place where death is prevalent, this nasty, gross sin, bestiality itself is happening. That itself will not overcome the confession and the people of God who believe that Jesus is king. Jesus gives Peter and the church the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Again, the list of proposed interpretations for this statement is endless. In scripture, keys are symbolic of authority. So you have keys. I've got keys here. Keys let me in the building. It shows I have an authority to get into the building. I'm not a trespasser, right? So he gives them the keys of the kingdom. And again, these keys are said to give them the authority to bind and loose. Binding and loosing referring to the church's role in binding certain things. In other words, in declaring certain things sin. In loosing certain things. In other words, declaring certain things good. Now, this isn't the church's authority in and of itself. It's derived from the authority of God and from his own word. Let me just paint the picture of what the church is supposed to do with these keys. We have been given the authority. Talk about freedoms. Talk about rights. We have been given the authority, the rights, and the freedoms to organize ourselves like the kingdom of God. That's what he means by whatever is, whatever is bound on earth will be bound in heaven. In other words, the church should look like the kingdom of God as if it's already broken into the world. People should look at us as a church and say, that's what heaven will look like. How are we doing with that, by the way? Can an outsider actually look at our church and say, oh man, if we know that heaven is filled with people who love each other and love God, and we know that heaven is filled with people who obey God, who put God's truth above their own opinion, who, who look to cover, you know, they have a love that covers a multitude of wrongs. Do outsiders look at our union and say, that's what heaven will look like. It may not. It may, we may not be there. Granted, we're not a perfect church, and I don't think we'll ever attain that standard perfectly. But as, as much as this is missing in the modern church, this is what Christ wants, nevertheless. And my friends, if our king wants it, if our king who died for us wants it, if our king who died and has given us new life wants it, why do we not want it more? Jesus concludes this section 
by charging his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, this seems odd to a lot of people. Why wouldn't he want people to know who he is? Well, again, he's not avoiding his identity. He's avoiding a title that has been misrepresented. In Jesus' day, the word Messiah came with all these connotations. You can read the Dead Sea Scrolls just to see what they thought about him. The Messiah was someone who would come. He'd be a powerful politician. He would be a mighty warrior. The dude would be going around slicing off the head of the Katim, the Romans, and he would push them back and Israel would become a world superpower again. That's what they wanted. And Jesus knew he was not that. They had a misconception about the Messiah. So going around saying Jesus is the Christ, all it would do at this point in history is get people to strap on their swords and say, let's storm Rome. Jesus has a different idea of what the Christ has come to do. And he's about to show them what that different idea was. If I were to tell you that God was about to send a king to the world who would reign over all nations and you had never heard about Jesus or scripture, what would you expect him to do? Well, we expect kings to conquer all like mighty force, right? We expect them to, be, to charge powerful palaces. We expect them to make them and their followers incredibly relevant in the world. But Jesus doesn't come to do that. And he turns our idea of king upside down. You see, Peter understood who Jesus was. He said the right thing. Jesus is the Christ. He's the king. He completely flubbed it up with what Jesus had come to do. We'll see this in the next section. Real discipleship is not just saying and knowing that Jesus is king. Real discipleship is knowing why Jesus came. Keep in mind that Peter was absolutely right. Jesus is the Christ. And yet, even with this knowledge of Jesus as the Christ, Peter, like so many of his day, like so many of our day, misses the point of what Jesus came to do. Verse 21 says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day raised. Notice when Jesus decides to drop this little news on them. It's not after his resurrection that he decides that, hey, let me tell you, by the way, what all you've seen. The first time he mentions his death, his suffering and his resurrection comes at the moment they begin seeing him as the promised king. They've got the right view of his identity. Now he needs to set them straight on what he's going to do. The word must here is really important because in Matthew's gospel, the word must means that Jesus is following this preordained plan. He must follow this path. The path for him as the Christ, as the one who exercises dominion over all the nations, will be through suffering, death, and resurrection. How upside down is that? His coronation would not be in a palace, but on a cross. His dominion would be established not by defeating all of his enemies with the sword, but by being killed himself, by being defeated. He, as the king, has come to suffer, has come to die, and then to be raised. He's not going to lead a great battle against the Romans. He's not going to march into Jerusalem and seat himself in the place that he should be seated. He's not going to march up to Caesar and say, you've lost your throne, dude. Get out of here. 
No, instead, if he's going to march up to anything, he's going to march up Golgotha. If he's going to carry anything, it's not going to be a sword. It's going to be a cross. And that's the plan. How many of us would be, you just, you see that, okay? You've been raised your whole life as a good Jew and the Jews are telling you to hope in this king. This king is coming. New David's coming. Goliaths are going to lose their heads. You've been shared that your whole life and now these Romans are here and you hate the Romans and they hate you. And when the king comes, boy, you can't wait to see the Romans run. And then the king comes, he goes, oh yeah, sorry, y'all got, y'all misunderstood. My plan is not to kill the Romans, but to die for the Romans. My plan is not to slay, but to be slain. How many of us raised in that kind of mindset would say, um, I have a problem with the plan. That's essentially what Peter does here. He took Jesus aside. And that word take is, you can just see Jesus talking about that. And Jesus like, Peter's like, uh, Jesus, can you come here for a sec? And so he pulls Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke Jesus. Now this isn't this mild, Jesus, I have to disagree with you. No, this is like shame on you, Jesus. You're misrepresenting what the king's supposed to do. This is a, this, this word rebuke carries, he basically tells Jesus that he's wrong. I disagree with you and you are misleading us. That is kind of the connotation. Can you imagine telling Jesus, you've messed up the plan. I mean, Peter's mind's understandable here. Jesus is the king, but the kingdom and the cross look like two different destinations on the opposite side of the map. Jesus, you're the king, but you're heading the wrong way. Let me correct you here. Let me help you read the map that you wrote. How many of us have never, ever thought about that? God, can I, can I just tweak your plan a little bit? Yeah, Jesus says, this is the plan. Peter says, that'll never happen to you. That'll never happen to you. What you just said was wrong and effectual, and it was not true. Then comes Jesus' words, get behind me, Satan. I can't say he didn't deserve that. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You literally, you are a scandalizing stumbling block. You are someone who's trying to trip me up in my mission. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Why? What makes Peter's declaration that will never happen to you, Jesus? What makes that satanic? Well, if you go all the way back to Matthew 4, when Satan's tempting Jesus, all three of his temptations are trying to turn Jesus away from suffering. Why do you need to be hungry, Jesus? You can fill your belly just by speaking to the stones. There's no need for you to be the suffering servant and go hungry and homeless. Just speak and it'll be over. Why do you need to prove that you're the son of God by the cross? Why not just throw yourself off the temple mount? Scripture says that God will protect you and send his angels to catch you. And then, man, can you imagine how many more people might believe in you if you jump off the corner of the temple mount and let the angels catch you and then everybody will see that you're king. There's no need to go to the cross. Why suffer for a dominion? 
Just bow your knee to me, and I'll give you all the nations. No sweat, no blood, no thorns, no nails, no cross, no tomb, but all kingdom. Peter's offering the same thing. He has a crossless kingdom. He wants a crossless kingdom. He wants a victorious king, not a suffering king. He wants a conquering leader, not a suffering servant. And yet, Jesus in all of his rebuking back of Peter shows that these two things cannot be separated. The kingdom must come with the cross. The cross establishes the kingdom. As disciples of Jesus, it's good for us to remember this. My friends, if you have a paradigm of a gospel that is free from suffering, death, and resurrection, you do not have the gospel. If your version of Jesus is some white dude sitting on a throne in victory in a cush life and he never had to suffer for it, my friends, look at the cross, look at the nail holes, look at the thorns, look at the the scars on his back, and just look and compare that with your vision of Jesus. He suffered in every sense of the word. Bled died, and then rose again. God's plan for Christ is that he would be crowned king through suffering. God sovereignly welded this plan together. Now, I think as one scholar put it, it's, it's amazing to remember this truth. The cross is the apex of Jesus's kingdom mission, and the kingdom is the aim of the cross. So the cross is the apex. Literally, the climax of the kingdom is the cross. The goal of the cross is the kingdom. One need not choose between kingdom and the cross. For the cross is royal and the kingdom is cruciform. When you go into the kingdom of Christ, it seems cross-shaped. In other words, you're reminded daily that to build that kingdom, your savior died. And then when you look to the cross, you hear the cries of a royal king who is building his kingdom on that bloody wood. Christ must suffer. He is the royal king and he must suffer and die and rise again. Now, so far I've said nothing that nobody should be against. I mean, we, we tend to agree with these things, right? That Jesus is the Christ and that he had to die. You might be saying, yes, I agree with everything I've heard so far. Yes, discipleship means knowing Jesus as the Christ and trusting in the gospel, uh, in the gospel's plan that he would suffer, die, and raise again. Well, that's good. Thumbs up for you. However, do you get the third equally important aspect of discipleship? It's not just that the Christ would follow the plan to suffer and die and rise again, but that you as his follower would also. See, we don't mind a crucified Savior We just don't want to be crucified disciples. We don't mind having a savior that died. We just don't want to die. But Jesus says clearly, if you would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. There's a three part pattern here, denying oneself, taking up one's cross and following him. So let's just consider each of these. What does it mean to deny oneself? Very simply, denying oneself means to think and live in such a way that your own desires are not at the center. 
What you want doesn't found your life. What you want doesn't determine what you do, how you think. We as fallen people are thoroughly selfish people fixated on my wants, my needs, my opinion, my dreams, my possessions, and so on. When it comes to denying oneself, the fixation on self disappears and the love for another becomes prevalent. I watched this just last night. Man, our bed was warm. It was comfy. We've got this nice little foam extra mattress that you just kind of sink into. I've got this pillow that remembers the shape of my head. I mean, it's great. Rachel's sitting there sleeping. She sleeps with her mouth open. The baby cries. And this self-denying mother sits up bolt right. Now, I, as a father, have every temptation just to go, this dude needs to realize I'm off duty. I'm off the clock. There's no off the clock for a self-denying mother. She gets up, 3 a.m. in the morning, picks him up, sits in the chair, feeds him, burps him, lays him back down. He cries again. She realizes he leaks through his diaper and his clothes, and she changes him, and then she feeds him again and puts him back down. Why? Because as a self-denying mother, she loves her, her baby more than sleep. It's not that she doesn't love sleep. I can tell you, both of us have been married long enough that I know that we love sleep. We haven't gotten a lot of it over the last 10 years, but we love it nonetheless. But the point is, is that she loves Jonathan more than she loves sleep. Let's think of one other example. I I know many good husbands in this church. I don't put my name on that list, but I've seen many good husbands in this church. And I know like, man, they've got this comfy, nice house and it's amazing. And they dream all day at work that they're going to go home and sink into this lazy boy recliner and watch sports and veg out and maybe fall asleep in the chair. And yet they get home and they find that their wife is tired. The kid's homework is not finished. The laundry pile is growing. The dishes are stacking up. What does a self-denying husband do? Let's crucify the lazy boy. Let's nail it to the cross and let's do what we've come to do. Why? Not because he doesn't love his lazy boy. Again, lazy boys are very lovable. They're easy to love. But it's because he loves his wife more than he loves his relaxation. My friends, when it comes to denying oneself, we have to ask the question, do we love Jesus more than the things we want in this life? More than Political power, more than personal power, more than comfort, more than prestige, more than temporary pleasures, and yes, even more than safety. Every good parent who loves their children more than their own lives does not hesitate to run into a burning house to save their kids. Do you love Jesus more than anything else? That's how you deny yourself. When Jesus goes places you don't want to go. When Jesus loves people and tells you to love people you don't want to love. 
Do you love Jesus more than you love the disagreements? I mean, the fear that I have is that there may be people who actually love disagreements more than they love people, more than they love Jesus. God forbid us from doing that. Deny yourself. The second thing is to take up our cross. Now, I can't over-exaggerate this point. I know that time is coming to an end here, but with what's about to happen this week and all the things, we need to shape our minds around this. So ignore the time. It's impossible to over-exaggerate the cross. The cross and crucifixion in its own day was by far the most horrendous and most torturous means of death ever invented by men up to that point. It was meant to inflict the maximum amount of pain for the longest time possible to keep their victims alive and suffering for hours, maybe even days, maybe even weeks on end. The victim who was beaten to a near pulp beforehand would hang on the cross. He was either tied to it or nailed to it. He was left to burn under the hot Judean sun with no relief. And in order to breathe, he had to pull himself up by the sheer strength of his arms. And every time he pulled up for a breath, the splinters against his already ripped back would be embedded from this cross. Incredibly painful. Every breath that way. But eventually the man's strength would wear out. Eventually he wouldn't have the strength to pull himself up anymore. And he would hang there and suffocate by asphyxiation. That's what crucifixion was in Jesus' day. And so when Jesus says, unless you're willing to take up your cross, there are audible gasps among Jesus' disciples. Did he just say what I think he said? I mean, he's not talking about, unless, you want to, unless you're willing to wear this beloved benign symbol as a necklace around your neck. That's not what he means by carrying a cross. What he means by carrying crosses, unless you're willing to die and suffer for me in one of the most horrific ways to die like a slave, to be abused by others, to be treated unfairly and, hun- un- and, and hypocritically by the world. Is it fair? No, but unless you're willing to be treated unfairly, you are not ready to follow Jesus. That's probably the biggest struggle we have in our own political climate, right? It just doesn't seem fair. Everything seems hypocritical, doesn't it? Do we forget it wasn't fair for Jesus to die on his cross? We're just following the pattern. We're just following the death. We're walking the walk that Jesus has laid before us. My friends... We take up our cross. His path leads to uncomfortable, oftentimes tortuous relationships. And can I just say explicitly here? There is no such thing as a safe and easy discipleship. My friends, friends, if you have signed up and I, and I hope we are in days that you will soon learn what this means. To be a disciple means to hand over the death certificate of your life to Jesus's hands. To hand over deeds. To hand over hopes and dreams and desires and hand them fully over to him and say, you're my king. I don't think we quite get that. We're not even ready to really truly think about what our brothers and sisters all around the world have been dealing with for centuries. We, we, we hesitate even talking about because surely that will never happen to us. But I think we need to be ready to see that that is the requirement of 
discipleship. Disciples suffer. If we have a vision of discipleship that is free from suffering, I hate to tell you this. It is not true discipleship. There's no way around it. You may not like it. You may struggle with it. Jesus doesn't say to kiss the cross. He says to pick it up. And that's what we do as God's people. Now, we're not people who just suffer because we like to suffer. That's not why we take up our cross. We suffer because of the third point. Why do we take up our cross? Because we are following our king. My friends, if you really truly want Jesus more than anything, the climb to Golgotha is a light affliction. Death and burial in a tomb is a light suffering. My friends, we choose to carry our cross, not because we're some kind of masochistic people. We carry our cross because we choose to carry our cross because that's where our Savior leads. And we will have him more than anything else. Now, is it fair that Jesus would request this of us? Is he asking too much of us? I have three quick brief truths to show why it's not unfair. Truth number one is simply this. You cannot keep what you're destined to lose. Let's just decide your comfort, your money, your job, your position, your whatever is worth more than Jesus. How long do you expect to keep it? Every billionaire in the world that has ever lived and died has eventually had to liquidate their assets, oftentimes to somebody else other than their family because they've alienated their family. Every single runner and healthy person had a perfect heartbeat. Their heart eventually stops beating. How long do you think that you can attain things that are destined to die? That's what's weird. We can't give them up because we think we can keep them. And the irony is, is the more you cling to them, the more you find out you can't keep them. You can't keep all these pleasures. You can't keep the peace. And I'm telling you right now, there are people with us. Some of us, some of us have, have struggled because we have been asking the question, how can we secure our comfort tomorrow? And at, it's at that moment when we begin asking that question that we begin feeling most uncomfortable. It's when we start thinking about what do we need to do to gain prosperity for next year that we begin losing sleep. That's the irony of it all. And so you're destined to lose it. You're destined to see it slip away from your hands, no matter how much you keep it. The second truth is this. Nothing is worth your soul. Jesus says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in, in place of his soul? My friends, you cannot give enough. That's the implicit answer. There is some things more valuable than your career. There are things more valuable than your comfort and your sleep-filled nights. There are things more valuable, and your soul is one of them. Do you see that? You are living your life as an investment. Are you investing in things that have a built-in expiration date? Or are you investing for things that are eternal and never fading? And the final truth that Jesus gives us, this is why he's not asking too much of us. He's coming back. My friends, what pain, what discomfort, 
what death can this life inflict on us that Jesus can't undo when he comes back? I mean, do we believe that? That we can't give anything up that Jesus can't make right? Even our lives, you die, he raises you up. It's incredibly frustrating to be the devil. Kill these people, man. They're just going to pop right back up. They're like weeds. There's nothing that can be taken from you in this life or that you can lose. No pain, no damage, no nothing that Jesus can't undo. Now, we, we end with this warning. Jesus says there are some standing here that will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in this kingdom. What is he talking about in that last verse? I think he's talking about his resurrection. None of these disciples will die on their crosses until they have seen him raised from his. Except for one. There is one. He can't say all of you will not die until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. He just says some. Why? Because there is one man standing among these people that will choose that it's not worth following Christ above all else. And he will die before he sees Christ resurrected. My friends, are you someone who would make that kind of choice? That rather than waiting on the son of man to come back to prove himself to the, all the world, that he is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Are you someone who would be willing to forsake him for the sake of having your comfort, your prosperity, your sleep filled nights? Or would you be willing to give up all of those things for the sake of Christ? My friends, you may not like what I have to say. I'm speaking transparently as your pastor. You may not like the message. You may not like and agree with God's plan. That's fine. But this is what it means to be a disciple. And in the world we live in, this is the preparation that you must be willing to make. Will you take up your cross and follow him, come what may? Or will you cling to your petty, fading comforts that will one day die? Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you make us real disciples today. That we will know and trust you as our king. That we will know that the plan has always been for you to suffer and die. And Lord, even more that you have planned and set the pattern for us to suffer. Lord, God forbid that we would try to forsake the pattern that you have clearly given us. For those who have a crisis of faith at this moment, I pray, Father, that you will help their unbelief and help their faith. Lord, that you will help them to trust in Jesus as king. That you will see them, that they can go nowhere, that Jesus himself has first gone. Our king has not asked us to carry his cross for him. Our king has not, unlike many other leaders in our history, Lord, asked us to go before him carrying our crosses. He has gone ahead of us carrying his cross. And now we follow. God, I pray that you will make us healthy disciples who trust in you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. We get the great joy of taking the Lord's Supper today and remembering that it was for us who trust in Jesus that we are able to enjoy the body and the blood of Christ spilt for us. We are blood-bought people in Christ. And so as the ushers go out and hand out uh, the elements, if you will just take a moment and contemplate the message that you've heard. Again, you might have different thoughts. You might have all these kinds of things, but contemplate what it means to know Christ is King. Contemplate what it means that he came to die for you 
and then contemplate what it means that you are partaking in his death and resurrection with him. And pray that he gives you courage to do and go where he leads. So let's take time and contemplate that as the music plays and as the elements are going out. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father God, I pray that you will make us a faithful people, that we will faithfully proclaim your death until you come. Lord, when Jesus returns, we pray that he will find us doing the king's business that he will find us proclaiming and speaking about his cross and find us modeling and following him. God be with us this week. We pray this in your son's name.